Welcome to the podcast where heavy industrial industries meet the venture capital ecosystem, interviewing both thought-leading investors and pioneering founders to better understand the opportunities and challenges that lie ahead for digital industrial innovation. Your host is Ty Finley, and this is the Heavy Hitters Podcast. Guy Perlmuter joins us today from Sao Paulo, Brazil. Guy is both the founder of Grids Capital and the author of recently released and award-winning deep tech book, Present Future. Before founding Grids Capital, Guy was the chief risk officer at Benko Pactuel and Vinci Partners, where he worked with asset allocation models across multiple asset classes. In line to our chat today about deep tech, he uniquely blends that capital markets background with his prior education in both computer engineering and a master's in artificial intelligence. Guy has invested in several well-known deep tech pioneers, including in topology, heliogen, and recursion pharmaceuticals. Guy, I'm beyond honored to have you on the show today to go deep on the topic of deep tech and its application into the digital industrial world. So really appreciate you joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Ty. Great. Well, let's jump in. Uh, we'd like to start with backgrounds. Walk us through that background and, and really that interesting and very complimentary background to the discussion of deep tech that's led you into your current role leading Grids Capital. So I've always been into technology uh, since I was a, you know, a kid, really. And uh, as I did my undergrad major in computer engineering and then proceeded uh, on electrical engineering, artificial intelligence, I felt that the uniqueness of technology was all around us. And I always tried to figure out how I could ultimately do that for a living, right? So I, in the beginning of my career, I was kind of struggling with where, which role would be more adequate for my uh, aspirations and working with technology. Uh, and uh, when, you know, in a very uh, convoluted manner and a very long story that we can certainly discuss some other time, I started working in the financial markets. I realized that the experience that I, I was earning at uh, at the bank and in, in subsequent uh, venues uh, would allow me to blend the financial acumen with the technology uh, knowledge. So ultimately, this blend points to uh, venture capital unequivocally, right? So this is when I figured that the best of both worlds would be for me to use both experiences uh, into uh, Grids Capital. Well, great background to segueing us into Grids Capital. And, and we got connected through some, some mutual venture investor friends also focused in this area. So set the stage for our listeners about uh, the efforts at Grid Capital, when and why it was started, what you're focused on, and, and ultimately how those efforts also tie into the world of, of digital industrial application. Right. So I started as an angel investor way back when. And in uh, 2015, I guess, I figured that the wave of innovation that was coming uh, to fruition uh, was uh, too uh, uh, too big to pass. Uh, as an investor and as an expert in technology, I felt that uh, this was too good an opportunity for me not to allocate 100% of my time into. So I decided to start Grids Capital uh, in 2015, 2016 uh, as a deep tech shop. So the only thing we invest in are uh, companies and, and technologies uh, that that uh, pertain to this particular group, which we can certainly discuss 
uh, in the next uh, uh, few minutes. But ultimately, the idea behind uh, grid tech uh, investments uh, are into where are the uh, technologies where there's a very high barrier of entry, where it's very complex and very non-intuitive for other competitors to try to break into and where you can multiply or you can have an amplification of those technologies and their effects. So what we're looking for ultimately are inevitabilities, which are the technologies that are, regardless uh, on your views on the future, are going to be present in our lives, and uh, asymmetries, meaning technologies that uh, uh, or investments that have a relatively controlled downside and hopefully uh, uh, an interesting upside for, for our investors. Got it. And and I think now with us having referenced this word deep tech a few times, this is what I'm really excited for us to dig into off the back of that. We, You and I both spend a lot of time evaluating and investing in deep tech. And and again, I'm going to reference, you You wrote a, a, a novella, if I'll call it that, on the topic <laughs> itself called Present Future. So I very much encourage our listeners to go check it out. So let, let's just set up a foundational kickoff to this discussion. Define what is deep tech and then to what I really resonated with the book, why you labeled it present future. And I won't lead the witness here, but I'd, I'd love for us to dive into those two. Absolutely, that's that's a fantastic question. So I guess there there are several ways to define deep tech, and I'm sure that if you, if you ask different people, you'll get different answers. But my rule of thumb uh, for deep tech is as follows. Let's assume that you and I were having lunch at a restaurant uh, and uh, you know we're, we start talking about a specific company or an idea that we have to start a company and there are folks uh, nearby overhearing our, our conversation, right? In the deep tech world, even if other folks listen to your idea or your thesis, it's going to be very hard for them to replicate because typically deep tech companies, they have, uh, uh, as I said before, a barrier of entry, uh, a technical uh, foundation that is very complex that requires, uh, you know, years, if not decades of training and that allow that idea to be relatively insulated and protected with patents and intellectual property and, and, and research based in physics, chemistry, biology, math. Uh, so for me, deep technology is any company or any idea where you can check their root and see that at the bottom of all, at the foundation of that specific company, there's a very technically oriented idea, very hard to copy, very hard to mimic. Gotcha. And, and maybe if I could go a little deeper into some some use cases off the back of that setup. Um, a lot of the listeners here we're focused on, we use the word digital industrial, more of legacy industry applications. Obviously, deep tech is much broader than, than just that. Um, within the book, you do spotlight in a few chapters different technologies that, as you quote, effectively are building the future of the world economy. I could not agree with you more. Um, could you give us a couple of those examples to really bring this to light in a more tangible way? Absolutely. And again, it goes it, go, it goes to your previous question on, on present future, right? Uh, the idea behind the title of the book, Present Future, Business Science and the Deep Tech Revolution, is that uh, many of the technologies that are going to shape the global economy in our lives, they are already here. Uh, you know, it's the old quote that the future is here. It's just not 
uh, evenly distributed, which means that you and I, um, uh, we have access, we have a, a sneak peek into what's coming down the pike and we can do something about it. So when we look into 3D printing, for instance, when you look into robotics, specifically industrial robotics, uh, uh, which uh, it's right up your alley, uh, when we look at mobility, uh, when you look at new materials, at energy, all those technologies individually, they contribute to the to the changing landscape of, of, of the future of industries in general. And we feel that uh, as we progress over time, this change is only going to accelerate. And here lies one of the key messages that we try to convey in the book, which is it's not as if technology has just recently started to change our lives, right? Society uh, has been driven by technology forever. This is what pushes us forward uh, since the beginning of, uh, you know, the since man, humankind decided to stop hunting and gathering and decided to cluster around cities and become farmers and, and so on and so forth. The only difference really is that the pace, the rhythm, the acceleration of all those innovations, of, of the convergence of all those innovations uh, are just really uh, uh, putting everybody on a, a fast track towards the future. And I guess these are some of the core technologies that we're going to be uh, uh, witnessing changing industries uh, throughout the world. Uh, absolutely. And, and there's some other great literature out there like Walter Isaacson's book, um, The Innovators, that kind of walks you from transistor, ARPA-E, and the internet. But what you really built a masterpiece around is defining some of these deep tech technologies that truly are getting a lot more press coverage. But I mean, there's been AMUG and rapid 3D printing conferences for over decades now. And in these technologies, I've lived in a couple of the big OEMs. They've been working on them and developing them for a long, long time. So I just love the fact that your book really went deep into the history, even defining industry 1.0 to move us forward into what the heck is 4.0. So uh, <laughs> anyway, I'm just going to keep bragging on it because we need more of this education process as we continue to deploy these technologies into the, call it more mainstream uh, ecosystem. So just bragging on the book. And maybe one of the things, Guy, that I also is I'm very passionate about the topic that you really lead off right after the intro to the book. And that's the topic of the human element involved in all of this, which is mission critical in every way. So there's a mountain of literature out there about the effects that Industry 4.0 are going to have on skilled labor pool. Some are in the camp that we actually have a skilled labor shortage, like the Deloitte Manufacturing Institute study that was not too long ago saying – by 2028, we're going to have 2.4 million dollar, uh, 2.4 million jobs shortage simply because we have a skills gap. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have uh, others in the robotic and deep tech uh, ecosystem, like Martin Ford with his book Rise of the Robots, that robots are just going to take all the jobs, right? And me personally, I think if there was a better time for robots to take all of our jobs, it would have been during a pandemic, but that didn't play <laughs> out so well. So, I, I, needless to say, of leading the horse again, um, where do you stand on the topic? And, and then maybe also the so what? What should we be doing still to prepare our skilled labor pool within the Industry 4.0 wave that's coming? Yeah, the future of work is is a, absolutely a fascinating topic and one that I think has been, uh, 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 you know, uh, subject of many heated discussions. There are studies like the one published, uh, you know, by a couple of researchers from Oxford University back in 2013 that said that almost half 
of the jobs uh, uh, surveyed uh, would be subject to very strong automation. Uh, there are some global consultants firms that uh, talk about 30 to 50 percent. Uh, and there's the Center for Economic Research in Europe that says, you know, we're looking at a 10 percent automation tops. But at the end of the day, uh, we're definitely talking about hundreds of millions of jobs that are going to be uh, changed. And I don't mean eliminated, but changed. And here's, here's my view. If we look at what has happened throughout history, right, from agriculture into manufacturing, from manufacturing into services, uh, we have always seen a phenomenon called uh, a creative destruction, right? Technology comes and changes dramatically a specific process, and this process evolves, and the workforce evolves alongside that particular uh, change. So we saw people that worked in the fields moving to industries, and then they were displaced by uh, robots, and they, they move into the services uh, arena. And now the big question is, now that automation is coming from for service jobs, what then? What are all those folks going to do? And my take here is that uh, I really don't feel that. And of course, we're going to see, uh, you know, displacement and people with uh, with a lack of uh, specific skills. You mentioned manufacturing jobs. Uh, there's also a huge shortage in terms of uh, cybersecurity experts. You know, by 2019, it was already the gap was uh, uh, the estimate of the gap was already into the in four million jobs, cybersecurity jobs that were unfit. Field, and we can go on and on and on. And therein lies the opportunity, right? We're looking at a world where the pace with which education, universities, technical colleges, technical schools um, are evolving is far too slow compared with the new needs of the labor market. And the fact of the matter is that all of these technologies, right, that have been decades in the making, AI, 3D printing, new materials, biotechnology, all those new technologies, they bring with them new jobs, new requirements, new openings. So I think there's a disconnect between how we're training and preparing our labor force uh, so that they are able to fill these jobs because there will be jobs for, for the skilled workforce to fill. The challenge for us, I guess, is to make sure that we can take this massive number of, 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 of potential employees uh, and train them and make them skillful enough so that they can uh, uh, fill those gaps into many industries, as you mentioned, manufacturing or cybersecurity or biotechnology and on and on and on. Absolutely nailed it. I, I complete lockstep with you on the fact that a lot of things are going to change for sure, but it's not like all the jobs are just going to, you know, overnight disappear. And I want to give a shout out um, our shared friends over at McKinsey. You know, some of their research got really granular to the exact topic of change. Well, let's define it a little differently. Let's break the difference of, of an occupation versus an activity as opposed to just bucketed into the word jobs. And I think their data said 50% of current work activities technically could be automated in some form or fashion. But key, key to the point, six of 10 occupations only have about 30% of actual activities that could be technically automated. And I know that's a lot of mouthful, but it's a really important difference there. And it's to your exact point, if we put the skills and the training forward, we can bring a lot of opportunity and value to the skilled labor pool. And so I'll bring it home then to where I think what you were saying, some of the challenge, 
how do we win this narrative back from the general public that in a headline, it's flashy to throw a robot out there. You know, we love the Boston dynamic dancing robots and it freaks everyone out. But how do we win the narrative back to what is a more salient reality of this is more of an opportunity than taking all the jobs away to replace the human element? Any thoughts on how we do that? Absolutely. There. Th this is this is actually a great question because it, it goes back uh, to the age of myths and mythology, right? We uh, humans have always been fascinated by uh, automation machines, and of course, our mind veers towards apocalyptic scenarios where robots are coming for us. We've seen that time and time again, almost from the get-go, right? The first time the word, the word robot, which has a, a Czech origin, which means forced labor, was used, was back in uh, 1935 or six in a play. And that play talks about robots replacing or displacing humans. So it's a place where our minds go to. There are plenty of movies that talk about, you know, what's the fun in 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 uh, in benevolent robots, right? That that doesn't sell tickets. We need, uh, you know, very catastrophic events to make people uh, uh, really uh, interested. So I believe that the narrative, uh, which again, you're absolutely right. I think the narrative is very much into the uh, the bad side of or, or, or the potential downside of getting robots into uh, the uh, the workforce. I think the narrative has to be replaced by not talking about robots, but talking about cobots, right? About the collaborative robots, because the, the, the way where I feel that the industry is going to move forward is we're going to have, for sure, the dangerous, repetitive, brainless tasks they're going to be handled by robots, and that seems to be uh, a pretty steady trend for decades now. But now we're we're getting uh, you know better sensors and better uh, machine learning processes, and we're getting better uh, uh, precision in those uh, robotic arms and tools. I feel that we're finally coming to a place, and there are many companies that are working towards that scenario where we're going to see the humans working alongside the robots. So they're re really going to augment us and make us better and that are they are going to hopefully uh, take care of everything that is potentially dangerous and harmful and leave us to collaborate in a way that I think we have not never seen before. And hopefully that will bring uh, new levels of productivity in many, many industries. Well, so thoughtful as always. And, and this is, again, why I'm going to, for the third time, encourage the listeners to go pick up Present Future, because if you are trying to dig into that detail Guy was just mentioning, it's all in the book. It gives you a historical ramp up. And, and I think it really does tell the narrative that that we're trying to overemphasize. So, Guy, I think you and I only have more and more promotion of this topic uh, <laughs> to come in the years ahead. So I'm excited about it. Um, this is a fun part, though, about your background. One minute we could be talking about um, deep historical trends around deep tech. And the next minute, you're you're an expert in the capital markets as well. So let's let's move the conversation into the capital markets. And let's talk about the current private market funding environment that is supporting deep tech at record levels. And you know, this recent explosion of exits within our shared categories we're looking at. The question is, are we in a healthy funding environment for these types of technologies that most would say usually take many more years to reach full business model maturity? Or are we in a bubble where the capital is there, so these categories are getting pumped up, and, and maybe the next market cycle, whenever that occurs, I don't have a crystal ball for sure, we're, we're in for a big uh, a collapse again. Where, where do you stand where we're at? 
So I think the the history of multiple asset classes, right? And we've seen that in uh, in hedge funds, in real estate, in private equity, in venture capital. Uh, apparently now now it's it's as you said now it became a very preeminent topic of conversation, right? Deep tech was restricted to a few connoisseurs, and now all of a sudden, uh, mostly I guess because of the pandemic where now everybody knows what are antibodies and CRISPR and mRNA vaccines. And then, of course, this will overflow into robotics and energy and machine learning, which is finally now a part of our, our lives. I feel that in every asset class where you have more eyeballs pay attention to it, uh, you have a dispersion of returns that is substantially larger. And to your point, you know, from the previous question on what are the headlines that will capture people's imagination. Uh, it's either uh, uh, one of those home runs, those recumbent successes where there's a significant multiple and a lot of people make a lot of money, or the failures, the disasters. And the truth is that 98% of the outcomes uh, stand between those two extremes, right? Those two extremes, they are the ones that people will talk about, but they are not your regular run-of-the-mill outcomes. So I believe that the current environment where you have more people looking into uh, venture, specifically into deep tech, where you have more people moving into the idea of running a deep tech fund, where you have more people, more entrepreneurs thinking about starting a deep tech company. I think there are uh, some safeguards in place in the deep tech world that will probably uh, avoid disaster, meaning the collapse of the asset class, right? We saw that 20 years ago, we saw uh, clean tech being absolutely hammered because everybody was doing solar panels and then uh, China started to manufacture those and the price tanked and nobody had anything else to do with their investments into uh, alternative energy sources and the market was wiped out. I think we're now at a very different place. We're looking at many different types of uh, of. Uh, um, demonstrations of how deep technology can become part of our uh, daily lives. So I think what we're going to see is, again, history repeating itself. I think we're going to see some terrible uh, outcomes for, for some investors that were not able to access or to choose uh, from funds or, or portfolio managers that are uh, into this particular topic and have the connections and have the relationships and have the network. because. Uh, out of all the asset classes out there, venture capital is arguably the one that uh, some folks don't even call an asset class. They call it an access class because venture capital is all about you being able to access the right portfolio managers, the right founders, the right technologies. And the other thing that I think it's relevant and it's important is that the fact of the matter is that SPACs and, and, and any financial instruments that are being uh, offered to the public, they, they have uh, two sides, right? You have one side where you are actually accelerating and helping some companies uh, to, uh, to get to market quicker uh, and in a very transparent way, more often than not. But at the same time, you have the opportunistic players that are going to take uh, the buzzwords and going to kind of try to uh, create some sort of a mishmash of technologies and see if that flies. And again, 
it will fly for a short period of time. Some people will get burned. But for the markets as a whole, I don't feel we are in a bubble. I think we are certainly in an environment where uh, investment pace and the uh, number of choices you have uh, has exploded and for good reason, because there are a ton of great ideas and great founders that now have the tools and the capabilities uh, to develop fantastic companies. I'm with you, Net. This is a great thing to have more capital flowing into these innovative founders. And and because you said the word, we're going to go down the path. You said SPACs. They they clearly have filled this gross stage funding gap that, in my opinion, lived between early stage VC in the deep tech space and then public markets, especially around industrials and clean energy, again, focus of this crew. So the question is, as uh, Grids Capital, I know you do some fund investing as well. Do you think this is going to premise new venture funds to spool up to fill this gap and then more broadly what's your thought on all of the sector focused funds popping up to play a role to also bring capital availability in a much more targeted way to your point about clear access networks that are really dedicated to this space how, how do you think this is all going to play out with SPACs kind of leading the charges to fill that gap well i think i think ultimately uh it's very uh, unlikely that we're going to see growth-like firms popping up out of nowhere because of the sheer amount of money these guys need to, to have, right? So mm -hmm. usually what you see are seed stage or early stage shops uh, you know, coming to their own and eventually uh, growing to a point where they can do some growth stage. Uh, so I feel that you will not going to see, you know, new growth stage funds popping up. What I think is going to happen is I think we're going to see uh, uh, eventually private equity players encroaching into venture capital and say, I want some of that action. I can do financing in the hundreds of millions of dollars. I can, I have a better understanding of how capital markets work. So SPACs uh, and any sort of publicly traded instruments make sense to me. So that's a phenomenon that I would not be surprised if if, if that kind of accelerates. Uh, but I definitely feel that, and, and I think you and I were seeing that, I think that there are a number of new entrants at the seed stage level, right? Early stage funds are popping up uh, uh, and, you know, there are the generic types, which I'm not sure if they're going to be able to, to go far, but there are the experts, the, the, the very focused, hopefully narrowly focused funds that are going to be able to become even more specialized and more uh and will be able to dig deeper into very specific technologies and i i i i say that uh you know and i can bring some examples to that when you uh you look at, at the market, you know, you guys are looking to clean tech and deep tech and robotics and digital industries. There are uh, parts of the venture capital scene that you're not really interested in, right? That you're not going to look at, that you're not going to spend time at, not because they're not potentially profitable, but because uh, you and your team, you have a thesis, a very well-structured thesis on how you feel the future could play out and which companies are going to be part of that future. And I feel that in the VC world, we're going to see more early stage funds that are going to take a sliver of those theses and say, okay, I'm going to be digging down into uh, applications of this specific technology. And again, uh, a phenomenon that we saw uh, 20 years ago in the hedge fund industry when 
the incentives are right, when the liquidity is there, uh, the market will fill all the possible spaces that are available. There will be a few winners. There will be a massive number of losers. So uh, I think for the investor, I think the opportunity is going to be there and it's going to be critical for them not only to choose wisely which uh, funds or which managers they want to work with, but even more important, there will be a premium uh, attributed to the managers or to the uh, portfolios that have a real uniqueness to them, a thesis that is strong, that is hopefully unavoidable, inevitable, and that will be able to uh, pay out over uh, you know decades to come. It's going to be an exciting decade for sure, and uh, I'm with you. You you better really know what your clear point of view is and clear line of differentiation is amongst all the investors that are in the ecosystem now. So, again, great to have all the capital, uh, just getting more competitive ever. So it'll be fun to compete in. Guy, maybe last question here. We always like to bring it back to the founders at some point in the discussion. And, and so for those who are reaching out to partner with you, Let's give them some advice about what you get excited about with deep techs that are approaching Grid's capital and maybe always like to split it across, hey, maybe some keys to success for them as they enter the discussion and maybe a couple challenges to watch out for and avoid going in. So, so I think keys to success, they are linked to the areas where you were planning to uh, employ your efforts, right? So if you're trying to do something that has already been done, or if you're trying to work in a very small market, or if you're trying to develop something that uh, is an interesting curiosity, but really doesn't solve a specific problem, that's probably a pitfall. To, these are pitfalls to avoid, right? Uh, one thing that we always ask ourselves when we're looking at the potential investment is A, uh, is it inevitable? Is that particular technology or that particular problem inevitable and it has to be solved absolutely going forward? Uh, is it asymmetrical in the sense that uh, if I invest half a million, a million, two million, five million, whatever the number is, uh, is there a, a, a multiple upside compared to my potential downside? Uh, and the other thing is, does this technology solve a problem? or is it pretty much an elegant solution to a problem that people don't care about? So if all those three uh, aspects, inevitability, asymmetry, and problem solving, they are a fit, then it's a conversation that we are willing to have. Excellent, all great advice. We'll give you wrap up here with a section we call quick hitters, a little bit of rapid fire Q&A. So if you're ready, we'll jump in. Let's do it. All right. The number one thing you're looking for when in evaluating a deep tech um, digital industrial startup in our category? Inevitability. Give us a little more on inevitability. So, so um, I'll give you an example, right? Uh, I think all of us can, uh, uh, I think, say with a lot of assurance that the world is going to be uh, more, uh, there will be more people living the world over the next few decades. We're, we're going to get to 10 billion people in 2050, uh, that we're going to have a, a larger percentage of the population uh, uh, living longer and healthier. Uh, in 2010, just as an example, in 2010, about 500 million people in the planet were 65 and over, right? In 2050, it's going to be 1.5 billion people, 65 and over. So these are inevitabilities. So what does that mean for food, for sensors, for industries, for how we're going to shape up the, the, the world where we see more people, uh, people that are living longer, 
healthier, where we also see more people going to cities versus uh, staying uh, in rural areas. All those trends uh, will imply in a demand for more food, for more energy, electricity, clean energy sources. So if you are an entrepreneur and you look at those trends, there are just, you know, a massive opportunity set here for you to pick from and say, okay, this is the sliver of this massive challenge that I'm going to attack. Same goes for climate change, right? We're living in a world where uh, uh, we don't have to go too far uh, and search the news uh, very carefully to see signs of clear and present danger. And again, climate change is a, is a situation that at this point will only be solved by technology. So these are the types of inevitabilities where I feel that people have to dig into and where I feel that you and your team were incredibly uh, thoughtful on establishing where and how you want to deploy your resources. So much opportunity. Love it. What is one resource, book, podcast, blog you'd recommend to the audience to follow in this ecosystem? Uh, I'm going to say Twitter is a fantastic source because Twitter is really a rabbit hole. And if you know who to follow and which links to click, uh, you can really broaden your horizons dramatically. So instead of saying, oh, you should check this website or, or this book. Well, actually, I have a, a good book suggestion, but I'll leave that to later. <laughs> but in terms of, of, of websites and, 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 and resources available, I think uh, Twitter serves as, as a gateway into a lot of that. So if people would like to jump into the action quickly, I would just go into Twitter, find myself a list of you know interesting folks to follow uh, and start building a, a small library of, of websites that uh, should be checked out uh, you know often there are plenty of newsletters out there plenty of great resources for people to pick up from that's a great one actually I'm gonna give a shout out to John Tuff we've had him on the show before at Energize Ventures he's pulled up an industrial technology thread on Twitter it's got a lot of great investors and, and discussion going around this exact topic. So, Guy, spot on with that one and many more beyond that for sure. Um, one person who should be on the podcast. Uh, well, I've looked into your your previous guest list and I'm, again, honored to be part of that. Uh, and I feel that, you know, someone who, uh, who would probably be an interesting conversation is Sunil Nagaraj from Ubiquity Ventures. He has this thesis on, you know, software beyond the screen which I think has incredible overlap potential with your own thesis. So, uh, and he's a great guy all around. So, uh, so Sunil would be, I think, a great, a great guest for, for your podcast. Couldn't agree more. Sunil would be perfect for this. I'll, I'll touch base with him. Um, and then finally, best way uh, for reaching out, Guy. Uh, well, we have, you know, uh, a contact form in our website, www.gridscapital.com. We read all, all messages. So feel free to drop us a line. Awesome. Well, it's an honor to have you on the show. And I, I know we have too many more discussions ahead as we both try to promote and educate the market on, on all the opportunity that's coming with some of these challenges. So, Guy, thanks again for making some time here. Thank you so much for having me, Ty.